Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us and who communicates to us. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the Bible, for Scripture. Uh, and I pray that now, as we come to it, and we come to a topic of, of death and life, topics that can be challenging to process, I pray that you will give us each wisdom uh, from your Word and from your Holy Spirit today and help us to apply it to our lives. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts in this time be pleasing to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I imagine that many of you know the name Jerry Seinfeld, especially if you're my age or older, you probably know Seinfeld, especially because he starred in a TV show in the 1990s called Seinfeld. Well, he was a comedian as well, I, I believe still is. Um, in one of his comedy acts, Jerry Seinfeld says this. He says, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death, he says, is number two. Does that sound right? This means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. Now, I've met many people through my life who fear public speaking. I was one of those people for many years in my life. And I know that public speaking is a big fear that many people have. Yet, at the same time, that survey data that Jerry Seinfeld referenced is wrong. And he knew it. That's why he was poking fun at it, because as much as people may fear public speaking, he knows, and we probably know as well, that when we really think about it, people even have a greater fear and a greater resistance of death. And it's a difficult reality that at some point, everyone dies. And so today we're going to be talking about how to deal with death well. I invite you to turn to the Bible to Acts chapter 21, and if you're using a Bible from the few Acts 21, is on page 1120. Now this is one of those messages that I processed for a long time. I did not want to come in here and give quick and easy answers to this topic of death in part because I know that death is not an easy topic. I was reminded of that this last week as on one of my monthly Zoom calls with a good friend named Pete. He lives a long way from here. We've been friends for a couple decades. We stay connected via Zoom, uh, at least one Zoom meeting a month. And, and when I asked him at the beginning of the conversation, how are you doing? He responded quickly by talking about how he feels a heaviness. He had a friend, a good friend of his who died just about a month earlier. And we'd already talked just in the days right after his friend died. But he shared a month later about how he still was experiencing that heaviness from the passing of his friend. And it was a reminder to me of how difficult death is, even for very strong Christians. Yet at the same time, I am convinced that when it comes to dealing with death well, there is not a better resource out there for dealing with death well than the Bible. And so that's what we're going to be doing today, digging in the scriptures to see what we can learn about how to deal with death well. We're continuing our series on the origin story of the church through the book of Acts. Last week we saw Paul say goodbye to some church leaders from the city of Ephesus. That's where we're going to pick up today. I'm going to read in Acts 21, verse 1. I invite you to follow along. Luke writes that when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So we're going to pause there for just a second. This passage I read includes the names of ten locations. Now, I imagine that most of those islands and cities and regions are kind of obscure to us. So let me show a map just to kind of give us a mental image of where they were going. This is kind of in the southern part of Turkey through the Mediterranean Sea over to where Israel and stuff is right now. And we see they came to Caesarea. Paul was on his way ultimately to Jerusalem, mainly by boat, but they stopped in Caesarea for a while where they stayed for a week or so in the house of a guy named Philip. Philip was a leader in the early church. Uh, we encountered him a, a couple months ago, actually, in Acts chapters 6 through 8. He was a leader in the early church. Let's pick up now in verse 10. Paul is at the house of Philip in Caesarea. It says, While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So that's our main passage for today. We'll reference a couple other parts later. But we see here this guy named Agabus predicted that the Jews in Jerusalem would make Paul suffer. Now Agabus' name already appeared earlier in Acts in chapter 11. He, fore, he, he foretold, he predicted that there was going to be a, a, a major famine. And that prediction came true. Now here in Acts 21, he came up to where Paul was staying and he took Paul's belt. Borrowed it from him for a minute. And then Agabus took that belt and he tied together his own feet in his hands, probably kind of in a hog-tied type of position. And while he was tied up, he said that the owner of this belt is going to be bound in a similar way. And the owner of the belt was Paul, saying this was going to take place in Jerusalem. And then Paul would be handed over to the Gentiles. Now verse 12 says that when we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Yet Paul is convinced that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. In Acts 20, verse 22, Paul had said, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. So we believe that God was telling him, Go there. Go to Jerusalem. He wasn't going to be deterred from that. Yet he also said at the same time, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that, in, that prison and hardships are facing me. So we see there that Paul was dead set on going to Jerusalem regardless of the consequences. Now back to our passage in verse 13, Paul answered them, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You think if you were there listening to his words, how stark that statement would be. I'm, I'm going there. I'm ready if needed to be imprisoned. 
I'm even ready to die. That's a big statement he's making. He declared, I am ready to die. Now, these are not the words of a man who is depressed or weary. Instead, what it reveals is that Paul was not afraid of death. Later on, he would write in Philippians 1 verse 21, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So he's saying that that death actually would be a benefit to him, a gain. And if you read on that passage in Philippians 1, it's because then he would be able to be in the presence of Jesus, whom he loves very dearly, who he wants to get to know better and better. And in Acts 21, 13, there's an important phrase when he says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul, he was not trying to throw his life away. He was not suicidal and he was not on a kamikaze mission. Instead, his basic mentality was, if following Jesus leads to death, I am ready. I am ready if that's what ends up happening. You know, many people live in denial of death. They want to ignore this reality that death is going to come someday. They just want to sweep it under the rug and pretend that's not true. They want to think about death as little as possible. Yet here you have Paul, who is freely and openly talking about death. And I really think this willingness to discuss death is actually healthy. A general general principle in life is that if there is something that makes us anxious or afraid, we are much better off if we address it directly rather than trying to ignore it or sweep it under the rug. And in fact, we gain wisdom by thinking about death biblically. This is why Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We can gain wisdom from thinking about death biblically. And for that reason, I want to spend some time now thinking about this topic of death, talking about it a little bit, especially through the lens of Acts 21 and some other parts of Scripture, I'm going to offer two angles that can help us to deal with death well. And these angles um, are are not mutually exclusive. We can apply them both at the same time. The first angle is that death in itself is not something we need to fear. And the reason why is because death has already been defeated. We don't have to have uncertainty about what happens after death. We don't have to fear judgment after we die. Those are not things that need to hold us prisoner. But in order to make this statement, I need to add an important caveat to that statement. It's this. It's that death in itself is not something we need to fear if we are trusting in Jesus. Let me tell you a story to explain why. In John chapter 11, one of Jesus' good friends named Lazarus is sick and dying. And by the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has already died. And Lazarus' sister named Martha comes out and greets him on the road and is all upset not only that her brother died, but that Jesus, and she says, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus, in response, says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, Jesus is saying a couple of big things here. One, he says, I am the resurrection. And Jesus, being the resurrection, shows that death does not have the final word. You know, for us, death can feel so final. But when Jesus is part of the story, death doesn't have the final word because when Jesus returns, those who believe in him will be resurrected. That's why it says 
that the one who believes in me will live even though they die. We may die, we will die at some point if Jesus doesn't return before that. But if we trust in Christ, we will be resurrected. Now Jesus being the life shows there is a continuity between this life and the next. Jesus is talking about eternal life and biblically speaking, eternal life is a new type of life that begins now when a person comes to faith in Christ. Many people when they think of eternal life think of only what happens in heaven after we die. But eternal life begins here and now when a person believes in Christ. And it doesn't end when a person dies physically. There's a continuation from this life into the next. That's why Jesus says, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. There's a continuation where one moment a person believing in Christ takes their final breath on this earth, and the very next moment they're alive with Christ in heaven. Now these are some incredibly bold statements Jesus was making. I mean, you and I, we could say those words, but there's no way we could back them up with integrity. But Jesus did. He not only died, but he rose again, showing he defeated sin and evil and death. And he shares that victory with those who are trusting in him. And to symbolize that power over death that Jesus, that Jesus holds, he walked over to Lazarus' tomb in John chapter 11. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days at that point. He was very dead. He walked over that tomb. He called out to Lazarus. And Lazarus came back to life and walked out of the tomb. I mean, he was resurrected. And that is a picture of what can happen for everyone who believes in Christ, that death cannot hold them down. Let me give you a picture of kind of how this plays out a little bit, a little metaphor. Imagine this book is the story of your life, titled My Life. Story of your life. I use this illustration a lot in funerals, and I think it's helpful to illustrate what Jesus was talking about. Many times when people picture death, they think that death is the end of their story. If their story is captured in this book, it's kind of like closing the book. The story of their life is complete. It's done. It's over. It's finished. But biblically speaking, death is not like closing the book. Instead, it's like turning the page from one chapter to the next. And when someone's belief is in Christ, the chapter of life on this earth is very, very small compared to the everlasting chapter of eternity. The story continues. That's what happens when Jesus is part of the story. Now what I've been sharing about Jesus is really the foundation of Christianity. It's the foundation of Christianity. We've been talking about the origin story of the church. And we should never underestimate how profoundly Jesus transformed people's views of how the world operates. So let me give one example. It's a little bit unconnected from our main topic today. It's the example of humility. Up until the time of Jesus, if you look at the Roman Empire, humility was despised. It was something to be avoided at all costs. People could not understand how it was a good thing to lower yourself in order to serve others. Or how it was a good thing to not boast about your accomplishments. Humility in their mind was something to be scorned. But then here comes Jesus, who is esteemed as, as a great man on earth. Christians saw him as God in human form. And here comes Jesus, who, who served people sacrificially, who went to a very humbling death on a cross, who celebrated humility in his teaching. 
And his followers after that had to wrestle with this topic of humility. And if you look down through history, it was really Jesus, historically speaking, who changed the course of history and how people view humility. Because now if you look at a list of the values that are valued in today's society, humility would be up on that list. Back then, before Jesus, it was scorned. But the life and example and teaching of Jesus changed people's view of humility. They had to rethink humility. And likewise... Jesus' resurrection caused his followers to rethink death. Suddenly they were able to find a confidence and a hope in the face of death. And this changed even how they lived. And it can do the same for us. Now, all these things I've been talking about are not a reason to hasten death or to pursue death. I mean, you look at the Apostle Paul. He would frequently leave a city when opposition rose up in order to continue his ministry. And not to be killed in that city. So he can continue his ministry. So he was not out there seeking death. But at the same time, we shouldn't either. But we also don't need to fear death in and of itself. So that's angle one. Is that death is not something in itself that needs to be feared. But angle two is that death is a reason to grieve. It is a reason to grieve. I mean, Paul's friends around him, they had confidence in eternal life. But they still did not want Paul to die. Back in Acts chapter 20, as Paul was saying goodbye to the church leaders in Ephesus, it says they all wept as they embraced Paul and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would not see his face ever again. They were weeping. Acts 21.4, another group of Christians, it says of them, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They didn't want to face that chance of him dying. In Acts 21.13, after Agabus predicted the suffering Paul would, would face, it references that people there were weeping over this. And Jesus, in John 11, as he approached Lazarus' tomb, it says that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And, and there's a part of me that looks at Jesus weeping there and wonders, Jesus, what are you doing? You just said you're the resurrection and life, and you know that in a few moments you're going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why are you weeping? It's a really profound thing that Jesus is doing there, that he's weeping. I think it shows that even he knows that death stinks. It really does. I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing. And he also knows that death is not part of the way that God designed the world. But when sin entered the world, with it came death. And Jesus' weeping validates the grief that we feel in the face of death, whether it's consider our own death or that of someone else. Jesus here is displaying really the paradox of death from a Christian view. That on one hand, we can have utmost confidence and hope in the face of death, but on the other hand, death is still a reason to grieve. And from our human perspective, no matter how much hope we have, death sort of casts a shadow, or a gr death, grief, over death casts a shadow over death. Grief is always there when talking about death. Back in 2011, I had a, a blood clot in my leg. I mean, it was a big deal, especially because I waited six weeks from first symptoms until the time I finally went to the doctor to get it checked out. And, and you know, give myself some degree of grace on that. For a while, I didn't know what it was. It didn't seem like that big a deal. It got to be a bigger deal. I still didn't want to go to the doctor. I finally did. And the doctor quickly evaluated it and said, nope, it's probably a blood clot. It was a holiday weekend. He sent me to the hospital to get it ultrasounded and stuff like that. And yep, it's a blood clot. It's in my leg. It's a big deal. 
I heard from many doctors and nurses that day how lucky I was to be alive, especially when they realized that I'd waited six weeks with that blood clot sitting in my leg. And so suddenly, and for those next few days, I felt like a walking time bomb until the medication stabilized that blood clot in my leg. I mean, it was, it was kind of scary. And I distinctly remember my thoughts while sitting in bed that first night that I, I received that diagnosis. I want to read to you a little bit of the prayer journal of what I wrote that night as I thought about these realities I was facing. I wrote, I feel like this is the closest I've come to actually facing my own frailty and mortality. A tiny blood clot, even the one that's in me now, could easily end my life or render me incapacitated. The issue isn't that I'm directly afraid of death, or so I think. What causes me anxiety is how death may come, and more so how Shelley and Micaias would do. Yes, I believe they would move on, yet there would be a big hole in their hearts. And then I went on to reflect on a couple of fathers I was aware of who died relatively recently, and how that impacted their families. And then I began to wonder, if my son Micaias, who was under two years old at that time, if I died, would even be able to remember me when he grew up. And these are the types of things that make death so hard. It's relationships that are severed. It's practical hardships. It's the hopes and the dreams that are cut short. You know, Jesus wept. And we can too, even as we trust him. Now these, these topics, they are hard. I mean, they're hard to deal with. But I want to share with us four application points to help us deal with death as well as possible. First application point is to trust in Jesus because only his grace that is received by faith can reconcile us with God. Now, if you aren't trusting in Christ, there is reason to fear death. In part because we have a spiritual death penalty, an eternal death penalty that we all deserve. Jesus paid that death penalty on the cross. He was resurrected, defeating death. But if we don't turn to him by faith and trust in him, then we still have the death penalty to pay ourselves. So first application is trust in Jesus. Second application, surrender yourself, including your future, to Jesus. I think it's a big part of what gave Paul confidence through the course of his life. Even though he didn't know exactly how things were going to turn out and what was going to happen in different places, he was surrendered to Jesus, including his future. As we follow Paul over the next few weeks, we're going to see that he was definitely not in control. Soon after he arrived in Jerusalem, a Jew stirred up a mob that began to beat him. Some Roman soldiers intervened. But the opposition was so intense that as they led Paul away, it says that he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob followed, crying out, Away with him! So we see that Paul is in much less control there than the Jews or the Romans were. Or I think of Acts 23, 11. A little bit later, it says, The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify about me also in Rome. God was ultimately in control. But again, Paul was not. He was at the mercy of others. I think one of the things that helped Paul out a lot was that he had surrendered himself to Jesus, saying, Jesus, not my will, 
but yours be done. And if we are able to do the same, surrendering ourselves to him, including our future, that's going to help us out a lot when we face circumstances beyond our control that shake up the plans that we thought we had for ourselves. So surrender yourself, including your future, to Jesus. Third, lament by pouring out your emotions related to death. Now, death is hard. It stinks. It's hard to think about it for ourselves, for others. For some reason, people think that it's more biblical and more Christian if they kind of suppress anger or, or sadness related to death. That's not biblical at all. I mean, Jesus wept. You look in the Psalms over and over, they're lamenting about the, the, just all kinds of challenges. Lament is deeply biblical and it's deeply healthy. Lamenting is simply pouring out our emotions to God, to others, when we are facing something challenging. So it's important to lament. And finally, invest intentionally, generously, and lovingly in your relationships. You know, when, when you talk with people about the struggle they have when it comes to death, a big part of it is frequently relational. When I was talking to my friend Pete this last week about missing his friend and about what he was grieving, the heaviness, it was about a relationship. They had been severed. It was relationships that, that this man left behind of a relatively young family still. It's grief over relationships. And, and so one of the things, at least to help us to... to deal with death well and that reality is to invest well in our relationships and part of that is when we love someone when we're proud of someone when we're thankful for someone's influence in our life tell them verbalize that either verbally or in writing so i think about it at funerals you know i'm involved in a lot of funerals as a pastor i frequently hear people talk about just how how special that person was how much they love that person how much that person meant but sometimes I hear people talk about, I didn't ever voice that to that person when they were living. And that's a source of regret. I think one of the ways we can live well in light of death is to make the most of the opportunities to build the people up around us now. To encourage those around us. If we love someone, tell them. If we're proud of someone, put that into words. If we are thankful for someone, for their influence in our lives or someone they did to help us, Tell them. Don't just hold that in. I think that's one way to live well and wisely in light of death is to make the most of the opportunities we have now. You know, the reality is this stuff is hard. Yet, at the same time, central to the message of Christianity is that Jesus brings life from death. He brings hope where previously there is none and he brings peace and confidence where there is anxiety and fear. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to celebrate a baptism. And the interesting thing about these is they both talk about death leading to life. Lord's Supper is literal in that sense. The death of Jesus leads to life. Baptism is more metaphorical and, and, and spiritual in that sense of dying to oneself leading to new life through Christ. Both of these things talk about death that in the end brings life and this can give us joy and hope even in the midst of challenges so i'm going to pray for us and then i'm going to pray for the offering as well and then we'll continue through our celebration of jesus bringing life out of death so let's pray jesus we're thankful that you do give us hope and confidence in the midst of so many challenges our world is broken and we grieve that we live in this world where 
there's so much pain and sorrow, uncertainty, and even death. Jesus, we praise you because you've defeated death. And Lord, help us to live in a way that lives out hope and confidence in you. I pray that we will make the most of the opportunities with those around us to speak life into those around us, to build them up, to encourage them. And I pray that we will make the most of every day that you give us on this earth and to ultimately point people to you because you alone give the ultimate and, and eternal hope. And Lord, as we bring back to you a portion of the resources that you've entrusted to us through this offering, pray that you will use these resources to help more and more people experience the life and hope available through you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.